Hello, ladies and gentlemen. I am O'Brien McMahon, and this is People Business. Every business is in some way a people business. From Silicon Valley to the restaurant down the street, every business relies on groups of people working together toward a common cause. That's no easy task. While the world around us has evolved into a high-tech, interdependent matrix, our individual software is largely the same as it was 10,000 years ago. We are social, emotional animals balancing a need to fit in with a desire to stand out. This is a show that explores individual and interpersonal dynamics, helping you become your best self while making the most of your business and the people in it. If you enjoy this episode, make sure to subscribe so you can stay up to date with future guests. That's it. Enjoy the show. In this episode, I'm joined by two guests, Chris Schmidt, founder and CEO of Azimuth Leadership, and Scott Morley, a senior leadership advisor with the company. Chris Schmidt enlisted in the Army at age 17 and retired 30 years later. During that time in the Army, he advised our nation's friends to be successful in volatile, uncertain, and ambiguous environments. In the multinational, fast-paced environment in Afghanistan, the Sahara, and the Balkans, Chris had the opportunity to collaborate with some of the world's finest leaders. Serving as a Green Beret, Chris believes that kindness was the most effective weapon in his kit bag and celebrated his time in the U.S. Army Special Forces as challenging, gratifying, and fun. It is in the same spirit that he founded Azimuth Consulting Group, inspiring high performers to summit epic objectives through executive coaching, team performance advising, and outdoor leadership expeditions created the opportunity to support fellow transitioning special operations soldiers while inspiring and serving others that are making an extraordinary impact in the world. Scott Morley graduated from West Point in May 2000. Initially commissioned as an Army officer, he became a Green Beret 15 years ago And during the time of this interview is actually in the process of retiring from the Army and transitioning to civilian life working with Chris at Azimuth. He spent significant time overseas, a total of six years abroad on deployments. His most recent as a senior U.S. Special Operations representative at the U.S. embassies in El Salvador and then Colombia. This was a great conversation on leadership Both of these are extraordinary men, and we talk about what it means to be a good leader, how to be a good leader, you have to be a good follower first, how to balance thinking up and down the organization and and really pay attention to what everybody needs, and about how leadership is really about serving the needs of your people. It's not about giving commands, but it's about serving the needs of your people so they can do the job that they need to do. There's a ton in here. I'm really excited to share it with you. I hope you enjoy the gentleman from Azimuth Consulting, Chris and Scott. And we are live with Chris Schmidt and Scott Morley from Azimuth Leadership. And uh, gentlemen, it is an honor to have you on, and I could not be more excited to talk leadership with you both today. So thank you for joining. Thanks for inviting us, Toby. Thanks for having us. Yeah. So. I will do my best as the host here to sort of help the audience get comfortable with whose voice is whose as we get started here. But uh, Chris, as the founder and CEO of Azimuth, I thought it might be good just to have you start by pitching Azimuth and explaining what it is that you guys do. Right on, right on. You know, I was in Gao Mali my past career. 
I was a, an army special forces guy. So that meant I was a Green Beret and I was responsible for this massive train, this massive development effort of Saharan countries and their militaries. So that puts me in Gaumali and it's 122 degrees. And I'm thinking through all the conversations that I just had with senior government officials and generals that day back in the Capitol. And over a bottle of warm water, I'm thinking about my someday happy place uh, and what I'm doing in that someday happy place. And I was thinking about how I help leaders do a better job of being prepared for those difficult situations, being in that ambiguous environment. I was thinking about how I could do that in a way that I could be a thought partner and accountability partner. And I was thinking about a way in which we could do that, not necessarily always in the corporate boardroom, but in my happy place up in the mountains or in the snow, it was 120 degrees. And that thought, I would place that thought, well, that thought was October of 2010. That thought is what I wanted Azimuth Consulting Group to be, is to to be in a small way in my next career, a way that I could help those that are serving others do a better, do a better job, have it more refined, actually have someone so they don't feel so, as I was kind of feeling in that moment, maybe a little bit on my own, making really, really tough decisions, but not really having someone that I could bounce that off of. And that's what I thought there'd be a ton of value in the corporate world. I really didn't even know that there was a executive coaching, like total business about that. It was really just a thought that that would be something that would work. So in the spring of 2017, when we launched Azimuth Consulting Group, the idea was to be able to, to help with other organizations. And fortunately, being in the Seattle area, I had got lucky and had an opportunity with Starbucks and it just blossomed from there because I think work begets work. And so when you talk about doing leadership consulting and you mentioned a little bit about doing it in your favorite environment, which is the outdoors, how do you blend those things together and and what does the actual work look like that you're doing now? You know, a lot of it, especially in the COVID environment looks exactly like this. We're, we're all the Jetsons. We're all standing in front of our screens and we're talking back and forth to one another. But as I, I work with a senior leader who might be just down the road or might be in London, one of my clients are, and we've decided, you know what, let's, you're spending a lot of time doing Zoom every day. Let's have this conversation. Let's have this of whether it's it's starting with self-awareness or it's starting with where your priorities are or it, we're already past that. And we've developed a, a developmental plan that uh, now we're talking about how you're getting those things done or just the big problem of the day. And we're being thought in part or thought partnering on it. It might just be I'm on a phone he or she's on a phone and we're both going for a walk in our neighborhood. Fortunately for me, my walk is with mountains that are 4,000 feet above me in the, on the valley floor here. 
and I, you know, shamelessly share pictures of the snow peaks all the time. But just that opportunity to get away from the screen opens the possibility. Now, that's the easiest way. But I also regularly take some of my leaders on a snowshoe. This morning, one of my clients, I meet up and we go for a ski this time of year. And as we're climbing up into the mountains and we're chatting uh, and working through the experience when we're up on top, you know, that peak experience, there's something to that. And there's something that's going on with dopamine and oxytocin and serotonin and endorphins that are, that are making that moment epic. That also lends to whatever we're talking about is going to stick. There's a, a, so some neat research going on at Penn right now that's looking at exactly that of how neurochemicals and neuroscience affects uh, the executive coaching business. And I'm like, well, I know that from 30 years of playing army, that being outside in those extraordinary environments, they do lend to a certain level of stoke that can be capitalized on. Well, as you say that, you know, you always hear about the bond of soldiers in the military, especially who have been through combat and, and going through trials together and, you know, whether it's anything from basic training all the way up to actual, you know, a, a firefight. But there has to be some element to that, too, that's just being doing all of those things like outside in the elements that that heightens those, some of those experiences, too, because it to your point, you know, if you have an experience sitting inside versus you have that same experience sitting outside, it is a much richer experience being outside. Yeah, yeah. And and if you can. And you're being intentional what a great way to just to enhance your day or life versus if you can double task, like getting a bit of a workout at the same time that you're working on your, you're working out on your leadership. That's uh 2021 multitasking efficiency, I guess. Uh, there, there you go. <laughs> there you go. So Scott, flipping it over to you, how many days have you been a civilian at this point? Well, he's still not. I'm not even. Oh, you're I, still not. Oh, no, okay. I'm on. I'm on transition leave starting Wednesday. So I had my retirement ceremony. Got my my retirement certificate two days ago today, and then I officially officially retire on the 30th of April. But I I've taken I've worn the uniform for the last time as well, of two days ago. Congratulations to you. And what was it about? Azimuth, what what is it about leadership consulting, working with leaders that makes you want to do this as your next step? Yeah. So what Chris and I have done for a few combined decades is be, be special forces officers, right? So Green Berets, our niche in the Department of Defense is kind of being your the the global master trainers. So we go overseas and try to help other countries establish security, address socioeconomic factors that cause instability all over the world every day. And we always come with a eye towards working our way out of a job. 
Can I teach? Can I coach? Can I mentor? Can I advise the leaders who are actually in charge of these fixing these problems? Can I help them, him or her, make that those logical leaps and get a good work done and take none of the credit? Right. That's what a good Green Beret does. What's cool is that Chris is Chris and Azimuth Consulting has given me the opportunity to become a Green Beret in the private sector. Right. So being a thought partner for a Fortune 500 company or the small business down the road, whatever it is, just helping teams get better, helping leaders make good decisions and uh, be accountable along with them along that journey. I think it's pretty cool because that's 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 what I've been doing for a for 15 years Wednesday. So I, re- I, I took off the uniform 15 years to the day that uh, when I donned the Green Beret for the first time, and now I get to do that in the private sector, which is awesome. Yeah. I, yeah. I guess I didn't put that parallel, but I mean, you're essentially doing the same job They're in, in a way, right? The same, ba- the same basic principles. Yeah. I think exactly. That's yeah. exactly right. Yeah. So talking about leadership, one of the things that I'm interested in is like base principles and frameworks. I People who listen to this have heard me talk about this and they'll hear me talk about it a lot more. But, you know, I think one of the things I like about the title of the show is people businesses. It's kind of ambiguous. It's like there's basic elements that if you can learn them and understand how they work, can be translated into all kinds of human interactions. And leadership is is one of those, I, I believe. West Point is known as one of the premier, if not the premier leadership academy in the world. Would love to have both, both of you went there, would love to have both of you just talk to, like, what are the leadership frameworks that you get taught from West Point? And like, how how did that shape what what you became as leaders and how you coach as leaders. I think what makes West Point great at developing leaders is from the very first day, you are consumed and subsumed by leadership examples, right? So you, from the very first day, I mean, okay, personal example, right? July 1st, 1996, I report to West Point I am on in a bleachers with a few hundred other cadets and their families, and we have to say goodbye. And as soon as you walk upstairs, it's a lot of tears. You're saying goodbye to mom and dad. Scary. You hear people yelling, right? And you get upstairs, and there's a cadet in the red sash at the top of the stairs, and and he's yelling at you, and he's telling you to get against this wall and move over there and don't cross this line. And it's culture shock. It's like, oh my god, and it, right, right then I start learning. Oh my God. First of all, I got to figure out what I'm going to do when I'm in that guy, that guy or gal shoes a couple of years from now. Do I want to do that? How do I want to treat others? Do I want to be treated like this? Right. And so from the very, I mean, seconds from the saying goodbye to your parents and the life that you once knew, right. You are observing leadership from day one. Right. And what I think makes West Point really, really valuable is 
you get, it's really easy. It, it's peer leadership, right? You get, it's, it's kind of e- easy when someone is junior in grade or junior in rank or junior in position in whatever organization to tell them what to do, right? It's really hard when it's one of your best friends for the past four years and he's telling you like, hey man, you, you screwed up, right? And you got to fix yourself. Like that peer leadership is, I, I would argue, is the toughest form of leadership because it takes courage. And to be able to do that every day and they incrementally increase as a freshman, you're in charge of yourself, just kind of learning time management as a sophomore, you get one or two cadets you're in charge of as a junior, a few more as a senior, it could be 4,000 as the first captain the entire time you're learning people skills, you're learning emotional intelligence. And that's the other thing is it's peer leadership. And then it's also just how do you empathize with people? How do you provide that purpose, direction, and motivation to other people? And that's the beauty of leadership. And that's where I think West Point does it. It has got a a pretty good model is you have to learn how to deal with people from day one. And it, it, for four years, you're immersed in that environment and there, you can't escape it. <laughs> Couldn't escape it if you tried. You, you have to figure it out and you have to deal with problems. You have to deal with ethical problems and you have to deal with personal problems and you have to deal with those things and you have to figure out how not only to solve your problems, but the best leaders are the ones who solve other people's problems. You don't, you don't want to work for a, a guy who only cares about the bottom line. You want to work for a woman who asks you how things are going, right? And if you don't figure that out at West Point, it's going to be a rough couple of years. Also, you got to figure out how to have fun because that place will drive you nuts if you don't figure out how to have fun somehow, some way, and have an emotional outlet somewhere in the process. And humor is a good one. Humor is a great emotional outbound. I think that West Point has this incredible culture. The stated tagline is duty, honor, country. And that that umbrella of duty, honor, and country helps define how you act and how you do things. And I think that that becomes a fabulous context to a conversation with corporate America now about Hey, your corporate culture matters. The words that you use as you define your company is a big deal. And, and to be true and to build all of the uh, trust that folks within your organization feel like they belong and that they're making a difference is super key. And I think that's one of the big things. I Scott, Scott went to West Point out of high school. I applied, but I didn't get accepted. But I was determined and, uh, you know, my, my Howard's Grove, Wisconsin background was pretty tenacious about what I had thought I wanted to do. So I, I joined the Army with an intent of getting to West Point. And fortunately, it worked out. I had to take the SATs 12 times, so I'm not extraordinary on math. And my wife does our taxes because it would be a bad idea for me to be doing it. But ultimately, you know, that first day... Uh, and Scott's experience and my first day experience, you know, I'm already 
I was already a sergeant in the army. It was a little bit different. And while Scott is going through uncertainty, complex, ambiguous, volatile, uh, I'm, I'm looking around going, this rocks. I made it to West Point. You know, look at that. There's Washington statue. There's, there's MacArthur. There's Eisenhower. And Scott's going, oh my goodness, that guy's yelling at me. And it's all about perspective. And to think through that, I think that's the second thing that I gained from being at West Point is that culture matters and everyone has a different perspective. And to be able to, to quickly, as a leader, figure out, this is my perspective. What's OB's perspective? What's Scott's perspective? How does that, because I believe that behavior is a factor or is a function, actually, I'm going to use some math, is a function of perspective and experience. And consequently, that perspective that's shaped by culture is, is super important for any organization. So, Chris, when you were there in your first days, I mean, did you have the wherewithal to be looking around and seeing the Scots who were maybe a little more on edge than you and go, oh, this is really interesting? Well, no, even worse, even worse, uh, even better than that. Uh, I had a I had a couple times I had seniors who were prior service as well grab me aside and say, all right, listen, Schmidt your job right now is to help your classmates. Your job is to, to help those guys be able to see the bigger picture and then to move past uh, where they're at. Uh, but also some of them are like, Hey, don't be too cool. And I'm like, no, man, I, I was a 17 year old private, but as an 18 year old had already moved up two ranks by, I was a Sergeant by 19. I had 25 year olds on my team that, so I got the, hey, you know, hey, sir, I'm, I might have been in the Army for a couple of years, but this is only day four of being a cadet. I'm totally cool with being a new cadet and being the best new cadet I can be. So there is a lot in both of those answers that I, I want to dive into <laughs> and, and unpack. One was a conversation that I was just having this morning, and, and Scott related to something you said, which is like from day one. You're exposed to leaders. You are asked to lead your peers. Over time, you gradually get more leadership experience. I mean, it's like the amount of reps that you must be getting in on leadership and leadership issues over those four years is just immense. And then fast forward to your special forces career and going all over the world. I mean, like the amount of leadership and coaching reps that you have, you know, has to be on par with anybody who's at the top of the game, right? And so how do you suggest, like as you're transitioning into corporate America, where people don't have that opportunity to get those kind of reps, how do you encourage people to get reps, whether it's in their company or in their own lives? Like how do we, how do the rest of us get those reps so that we can start to build some of these skills? That's a good question. I think First of all, you have to create the opportunities, right? You have to, for your for yourself and for your team, be it internal to your, your organization or external and you go do a, a team building exercise outside your organization and you go find a, a woods to walk in 
right? Or whatever. Number two, you have to make it safe to fail, right? I think a lot of, even in the military, there's a lot of paralysis for fear of making a mistake. And I think one of the key things that if you want to get good and you want your people to get good, you have to make it safe to make honest mistakes, right? And I think the the best leaders that I've had, Chris being one of them, were the leaders who allowed me enough rope. And when I fell, they picked me up and they patted my butt and they said, you know, okay, that was an honest mistake. Get back to it. Don't do it again, but it's okay. Right. And I think that's where I think getting the reps counts. How you get the reps, I think, is all in your creativity of how you can, how you can do it. I think a lot of it is also just that almost that psychological safety. Right. I, I heard on one of your other podcasts, right, that like that psychological safety counts. And I think that's true. You have to, the reps are important, but also when you're taking the reps, make it okay to make a mistake. Chris, did you have anything to add to that? You know, I don't think I don't think leadership starts at at the time in which you are now a manager and you have three reports. I think leadership starts way before that. And I think, you know, Barbara Kellerman writes in followership about how leadership is starting even when you're at the lowest level of the organization because you're regularly if you're you're a good follower, you're regularly anticipating your leader's needs. Well, I don't think that ever stops. I think that when you're a director, you're thinking about the needs of your project managers and the people that are underneath them, but you, you're you not doing your job correctly if you're not anticipating your leader's needs and your, your boss's boss's leader's needs. Like when you're tracking that two levels up of what the the senior VP needs or the, you know, the COO needs, if you understand their needs and you're giving guidance from those needs, one and two below, everybody's doing the right job uh, and everyone's thinking about it. So I think that it starts at the lowest level. And I think encouraging, as Scott just said, encouraging everyone to put in their two cents, feel safe, Project Aristotle by Google says that the highest performing teams are teams that have psychological safety, that have the safety that everyone feels like they can. This is what I think. It may not be the plan in the end, but at least they feel like they had a part. Yeah, like you can you can insert influence without being a leader. Absolutely. Right. And you then get reps. Yeah. Yeah. That is a good way to think about it. I hadn't thought about that as like training for leadership, but it is, you know, to start speaking up, start sharing, start helping. That's, I mean, that's training for leadership. And, and then when that senior project manager says, Hey, you know, mixologist at Starbucks, you're going to brief Roz, the COO at Starbucks on this new drink that you just created. That's a leadership opportunity. And that's reps. So it is about creating that environment, but it's also taking those opportunities to think not what you have to do or not just down, but always a balance of thinking up and down, up and down all the time, uh, whenever possible. And I think that 
is the key to not only a good organization, but it's a, it's a key to leadership training all the time. And one more that, that I'll throw out just as an idea, one of the areas that I've probably got the most reps myself in leadership opportunities is volunteer work. And I think a lot of people sit in their companies and wait for leadership opportunities in their company when there are all kinds of leadership opportunities out in the community, whether it be through a nonprofit or even like an industry association or things like that, where they're like begging for volunteers. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I was, I was a volunteer with a nonprofit that I've talked about on here a bunch called Embark here in the city of Chicago. And I had just been really involved, really involved, really involved. And they, the founder reached out and said, Hey, we're going to start an auxiliary board. And I said, Oh, that's, that's great. I'd love to be a part of that. He said, good, you're going to run it. And I was like, well, I've never done that before. He said, neither have we, we'll figure it out together. And it was just like, because to your point now in hindsight, hearing what you just said, like I had been a really good follower for a, a long time and had been committed to the organization, shown something that they made they wanted me to step into that role. And then we were able to, there was a psychologically safe environment and we were able to figure it out together. And, and I probably learned more about working with and leading other people through that than I have through professional work. And how awesome to get that experience because they don't report to you. You're having to learn how to lead people that only will follow if they want to. And, and honestly, that is how corporate America is working right now. The project managers regularly having to work with cross-functional teams and spaces with people that don't report to them, but they need them to, to accomplish is, is a big piece. Uh, you know, not to do this again to you, but it, it's something I, talk, I, I referred to earlier this morning. Uh, Key and leading without authority, you know, talks about how, you know, the co-elevation of everyone around you to your point. How are we going to do this? I don't know. We're going to do it together. We're co-elevating everyone to kind of jump in and work through it. it. It's how the special operations community works. I might be a captain and I have a staff sergeant, a sergeant first class and a master sergeant, but the team has full opportunity to have safety to put their two cents in because I need everyone not to be waiting to be told what to do, but to do what they know is right. Yeah, I, I think that's probably one of the bigger misconceptions about the military, right? Is that everybody's just acting on orders that, you know, people just give orders, other people follow orders, and that's how everything gets done. And you know, I've listened to enough interviews with military folks to know that that's that doesn't seem to be the case. So can you can you explain what it's really like? <laughs> Scott, go. I mean, you're right. I mean, like, good, good luck with that. Right. <laughs> <laughs> right? I mean, if you're asking for people to go into, into battle with you and you've been the, the guy or gal with the knife hand, just, hey, you're going to do this. You're going to do that. Right. That good, good luck. Right. You're like you're going to find yourself universally alone, <laughs> right? When you hit that that first door or that first line of, of battle, right? I think what that 
anecdote presents is like the opportunity to talk about one of the universal truths. And I think Chris learned it earlier than me, but I truly learned it going back to your earlier question about West Point was leadership by example, right? Is a universal truth, right? Like if you, no matter what, and Chris and I have worked in, I don't know, five different continents each, that if you raise your right hand and say, follow me, and the team knows that you're in it with them, you have buy-in. And that is, that's true across every culture that I've been working with. And that it's, People can just get it. It that it is human nature that it's hard to argue when the leader is uh, is not in it with them. And so, going back to the point, yeah, I think I think there, there's a it's a large misconception. But the leaders who are willing, regardless of your organizational mission, if you're willing to roll up your sleeves and just say, "Hey, I'm, I'm in it with you," and and let me know what you need, how what obstacles I can help remove for you and solve your own your problems, so that we can do better as a team. Like you're gonna you're gonna get a lot more buy-in from your people because the knife hand doesn't work. <laughs> it's not good. So I want to pivot a, a little bit and go back to we're still unpacking that first question. I think, yeah, right here, but Chris, you mentioned living your values, or maybe you didn't say it that way. But that was the note I took down. But you, you talked about at West Point how the values are written there, and and really that becomes the foundation that everybody is held accountable to. And that you counsel your corporate clients to really get specific on their values. I mean, I don't know a company out there that doesn't have values. And yet I've talked to so many people on this podcast who reiterate the importance of living the values. And so I'm curious with your work with corporations and with the individuals and corporations, like, why is it so hard to live those values? Like, why aren't people doing that? And how do you guide people to setting better values and actually holding themselves to it? This morning, I had yesterday and this morning, I'm working on a project with a with a gaming studio. Uh, And it's, it's one of the big ones. It's super exciting. And they're one of well, their value, their their leading value is this idea of living an epic life. And I'm going to turn it the other way around. My experience now of chatting with a few leaders, they're crushing it. Like they're so stoked about their company, and they're stoked about what they're doing, and they're stoked about the opportunities and the the space that they're in, and and that epic just kind of funnels down into not only their values, but really just in the, the culture and structure of their whole organization. And, and they're thinking about what Epic looks like in the next 10 years. And it's so fun and exciting because you feel the energy when you get it right. On the other hand, I think that if you don't get it right, you can feel it right away from the beginning because there's no trust. Because if you if you chat with somebody from an organization and they're like, yeah, I don't remember what my value the values are, I'm like okay, all right, so we got we got a lot of work to do. We'll see what we can what we can work on, because that's I think that's where it all starts. And so, do you think it's important to have written values and to have everybody know them, or do you think it's more important for the leaders just to be good leaders and follow good leadership principles. Cause I, I, you know, the counter argument can be made that like, yeah, 
it's one thing to have words written up on the wall and, you know, you can live by them and that's great. But like, what really matters is how you show up day to day. So but why can't they be the same? Maybe your value is just, you know, I, I, I don't have a list of values for azimuth, uh, but I would say that it would be something that sounds like be stoked, right? That's my value that uh, we're stoked because, you know, every day I get to work with people and, and, and then, so then my values might trickle down into uh, have a service mindset, serve up as well as down, you know, be present. Um, I don't know, get enough sleep, uh, you know, something that, you know, take care of yourself, you know, all that kind of stuff, but they should be able to rattle right off like that because that's what, that's what the whole organization's about. Like if it's, if everyone has to stop and go, yeah, I don't know what was written up on the wall. Whoa, like we're not tracking. We need to back up a little bit. And, you know, I, I guess I'll say one of the bigger companies that I work with is Starbucks. And honestly, truthfully, like that idea of how we're building community, one cup of coffee a day, which is in the mission statement, is 100% of what they're thinking about with every project. And that's super cool. And, and as a result, that even during an epidemic in which their stores were not serving coffee in their stores, their stock price went higher than it's ever been before. Because they're living, they're thinking about how we can still serve communities. Whereas they're thinking about how, well, gosh, maybe... Maybe we need to move from dairy because it's contributing to greenhouse gases and we need to think about how almond or oat milk or maybe something else becomes, we develop that as a taste because we're Starbucks and we can probably pull that off. Where, you know, another company has too much risk in order to do something new and unique like that. I think those companies that are truly in line with their values and living it, they don't have to teach anybody what the values are or post them or make people learn them. I think when Admiral Craven took over SOCOM and he moved the aircraft carrier, which is that big organization, almost 180 degrees. And he not had literally, some, for clarification, yeah. not literally the aircraft carrier. <laughs> but yeah, you know, the, the organization. organization, it is actually one of his thoughts was that. It was, you know, based on that book of moving the aircraft carrier 180 degrees and how do you how do you do cultural how do you cultural and organizational change? I believe that what Admiral Craven did is he he adjusted the values within the organization and it allowed us to be even more effective and to apply things like kindness in even an easier way to get things done on the battlefield. I know a lot of what you both did in the military probably can't be talked about here, but do you have an example of how one of those, how he maybe shifted one of those values and how you saw that show up out in the field? Scott, I, I have one ready, but I would love something from Colombia or El Salvador from your perspective. So from my perspective, I was 
the COO of operations in the Sahara for a considerable amount of time. And the reason for doing that, the reason why we were there was we were trying to get left of the problem, not right of the problem, not responding after 99% Muslim countries started having training camps and and there was like where where we ended up going into Afghanistan, right? There's training camps. The problem is already there. Let's get there before the problem. That's what that allows us to do. And now when we're there before the problem, maybe the answer is a women's sewing cooperative and on abandon the river in the Niger River in northern Niger. Because at that point, by allowing or helping enable some economy will ensure that those moms don't let their sons join this Salafist group that uh, is being encouraged by some agents from other countries that are there. And, And they're trying to build some momentum around something that sounds like a whole lot more fun than, than tending goats but you get to blow stuff up and, and you, and you can serve God in a better level. If those, if there's a sense of, there's a little bit of economy that's created, those women won't let their sons go do that. And that that's brilliant, right? Like that's so inexpensive. That's, you don't need to bring in aircraft carriers and tanks and all kinds of stuff to fight some war. If all we're doing is paying for some sewing machines or even yet better yet, we're not even paying for them because World Vision or you know another organization is doing that. All we're doing is enabling the environment that's secure enough for that sort of organization to work there. And we're not even doing any of the work. Their country's military is doing the work. And their military is now seen by their people as serving them versus being a bunch of thugs. And a whole bunch of goodness happens because we changed our perspective. And the values of the organization changed. What were the values that changed in order to encourage that? I would. I have a personal example that could answer this. I think. Right. So, right as Admiral McRaven was taken over at U.S. Special Operations Command, we were starting to figure out that we were going to have a growing problem with families and with preservation of the force, meaning service members, men and women who continued to want to come back into the the, or the folds of U.S. special operations to continue to serve. We, I mean, we, we had been at war for more than a minute, right, since 2001. And we were going to figure out that, oh, wow, like special operations personnel and their families have been doing this more often at longer aggregate duration than anyone else in the military, right? And so Admiral McRaven put his money where his mouth is. And to go back to your, your values question, I think no matter what you do, you have to walk the walk, right? Right. Whether it's written down or not, you have to walk the walk. And that's the, that's the culture that you're going to instill in your organization. Right. So in this case, Admiral Craven and the special operations command leadership went and fought hard at Congress because they needed a, a, a funding authority to make sure that we could preserve the force and their families. Right. All of a sudden, we start getting multi million dollar contracts for rehab and for mental health. Right. 
personal example, two personal examples. All of a sudden, fast forward now, I'm going into El Salvador. I'm, a, I'm standing up a brand new special operations position at the U.S. Embassy, and they bring all of the, the, those liaison officers working in embassies and their families uh, into Germany using the brand new funding line that Admiral McRaven fought so hard for, right? And all of a sudden, you've got a network of U.S. Special Operations personnel working in all of our key ally partners' countries that need to work together. And I'm bought in because now I'm like, oh, my God, right? Like, these guys care. I, that's how I met Chris, right? And Chris, Chris took my wife and I on a true to form. I had him climb a mountain, <laughs> <laughs> right? And we're clipping in iron. Uh, was that the guardrail? What's that called, Chris? The Via Ferrata. The Via Ferrata. Yeah, thanks. Yeah, we're clipping in and we're going over. So, and and right, and we're bought in. But it was because they had fought so hard for that funding to bring us all together. Right. All of a sudden, we've got a global network of families and liaison officers who can get work done. Right. Fast forward, now I'm in El Salvador and my son needs an, ex- an emergency surgery. Where is the best doctor for this medical condition? Find them. Special Operations Command pays for, for my wife and my son to go back to Florida and get an emergency surgery done. Right. What does that do? That, that creates a whole lot of loyalty really fast because they're putting resources back where the force needs it. I know another example where a Green Beret, his wife, had a cancerous tumor wrapped around her, her audial nerve inside her brain, and she was at risk of at least losing her hearing, if not losing her life. Green Beret finds the very best brain surgeon in the world. U.S. Special Operations Command pays for it. Green Beret and, and spouse go have the surgery. She loses her hearing, but she's intact alive today because of that leader putting resources where a problem was and fixing problems. And I'll pause there. Yeah, no, that's a, those are great examples. Thanks. You know, in that that creating that environment and values in that space then allows those extraordinary workers in that organization to stay working. And, and maintains that loyalty and uh, and it's true to form and and it allows for you know in in William McCraven's book make your bed his chapter nine the title of the chapter is give people hope and to go back to the sewing machine analogy uh, or other things like wells or medical capability exercises it became okay, or not only okay, but the way we do business is we can think out of the box and just give people hope. Because if you give them hope, then there's possibility. And when there's possibility, then it becomes a reality. And that when there's despair, when there's no hope, that's when badness. Super dangerous. That's when badness rules when there's hope and when there's hope and maybe joy that's when the world is safer that's when peace happens yeah it's so interesting to hear 
two men who spent a significant portion of their lives trained for combat talking about creating more hope and joy in the world. Right. You know? Yeah. You know, yeah. So guys that carry a gun for a living. Right. Yeah. Uh, and, and are very, very well trained. My daughter makes fun of me because in my room here, I've got like, she's like, you got weapons all over your room. And I'm like, well, what do you mean? He goes, well, there's a knife, there's a spear, there's a, you know, uh, I'm like, well, they're just kind of decorative things, but I guess, you know, when you're, uh, <laughs> that's having the, the tools of warfare all around you, I think then makes it even more essential that kindness becomes your most effective weapon because you realize that you, you would rather not go there. And actually what's more effective is just simply being kind. And, and rotate back that to corporate America. Like, you know, leadership presence is one of the things that I often, as I get a new client, that's one of the things that's the top on their developmental goals. I need to improve my presence. And that's often translated as, I need to be tougher. I'm too much of a pushover. Yeah, I need to be louder, more confrontational. Yeah, I need to be I need to be a good leader. And so I want this Green Beret to to be my coach because he's definitely gonna help me be tougher. And then I start talking about, you know, are you are you taking care of your team and are you leading making them softer? Uh, yeah. They're like, oh, you know, like, no, 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 no. Like the better you can be at your priorities, the better that you know. I have a rock star client that's now been promoted twice that the real breakthrough for her development as a leader was recognizing that she could take off, I think it was ended up being three hours a month to help in her daughter's kindergarten class and volunteer. That made her a better leader at work because then she wasn't always feeling like she was compromising in her job, then gave her permission to uh, do the things that matter. Oh, oh Bean, I, I got a question for you, right? So pre- pretty successful athlete, right? Couple, couple sports. That's overstating uh, it. <laughs> <laughs> played, played at a collegiate level, true, right? No, I did not play at the collegiate level. I, um, I played a lot of, uh, recreational sports at the collegiate level. I still play like men's league hockey and stuff. So athletic all the way through. Who was your favorite coach? My high school hockey coach. Why? Cause he, well, so he was a, a Vietnam vet Marine and he had a couple principles that he held us to. And I love that. Like he, he would, treat us with respect if we earned it and he would kick our ass if we didn't. And I just responded really well to that. And he, he was not the best, probably the best X's and O's coach I've had in all the sports I've played, but by far I learned the most from him and he, he helped me elevate just like leadership and performance to a better level. Cause it was just no nonsense. He cared very much about us, but expected very high things from us. How did his caring show up, right? Like how, what did he do that made you know that he cared? That's a good question because he was a hard ass. He, you could just tell by the passion that he had about developing us 
and and the passion he had or the the esteem that he put in doing it the right way. Like you could just, I, I don't know that there was any one thing, but you could tell by the way he spoke and the the stories that he told that he was very passionate about what he was doing with us. Mm-hmm. How many years was that? How many years ago was that? 20. And you remember him? Why? Yeah. For the, yeah. For the feeling. For the feeling, right? It's not, it, yeah. Knife hands don't work. Yeah. You know, I grew up in Wisconsin, so that means I'm a Packer fan, right? And I grew up owner. everything about Vincent T. Lombardi in the 1960s Packers. You know, growing up in the 70s and 80s, the Packers were not exactly fabulous. Uh, so we would watch games back in the 60s. So I've watched more games that Vincent T. Lombardi coached that I wasn't even alive when he was the coach of the Packers. But, you know, there's a great story about how as he was training one summer camp before they went in the season, and they were training that traditional Packers sweep. And they're doing it over and over again. And they're doing it over and over again. And Jerry Kramer, the guard, has to pull in this sweep. And he has to go and he has, he's key. His block is key. And he was regularly just hitting the you know, the first guy that he saw and Lombardi was pushing him harder and harder to look one level above. And like, at the end of that practice, he's certain like his career in the NFL is over. Like he just got ridden that whole day and Lombardi walks up to him, puts his hands on his shoulder, ruffles his hair a little bit and says, you're going to be the best guard that's ever played in the NFL. And it was those kind of, how do you show care? How do you show concern? You know, it's harder to do that in today's world, even in athletics, but coaching. But, but I still think that to be true to your culture, to be true to your values, if you know, just being a solid person and letting that kind of follow through within your organization and whether it shows up as epic or stoke or kindness if you live it to how Scott said, if you live it to your coach, it resonates, it catches on. And to have permission to just be yourself, well, that's something that I think a coach can help do because a key part of Azimuth Consulting Group is what's your strengths? Who are you? And how do you use that to be your best? Not only the best in yourself, but the best of those around you. Well, and that's, you, you said care, but I, I would insert belief there too. You know, that's something that gets talked about in the leadership program that I'm involved in at work is you can ride really hard on performance as long as it's coming from a place of belief. So when you were talking before, we've talked a lot about care and about taking care of your people, about thinking about the people who are on your team, anticipating their needs. I would say that's what your stories about Admiral McRaven were, right? He was anticipating the needs of his people, went out and solved them, and then that created retention and performance. You are also in a pretty serious profession where mistakes have real consequences. And so how do you balance care, being having failure be acceptable, but also needing performance? I think the reps count, right? 
like you, at least in the military, you, you try to get as many reps as you can before the real situation takes place. And it, whether you do it internal to your team, I think the mental reps and talking through possible problems with your team gets ahead of that in a lot of cases, right? And that's where I think you can you can almost artificially create reps simply by talking through stuff with your team, right? How are we going to solve this? How are we going to solve this? Get out, get out that dry erase marker and, and kill that whiteboard, right? Think through things and think through because you're going to get that input that Chris talked about before, right? You're going to get that psychological safety. Hey, you know, if, even if it's, if you think it with, if you're the, if you're the person with the dry erase marker in your hand, you think that whatever that person said was the dumbest thing you've ever said, write it down just so they think that they're, you know, that they were heard, but working through those mental reps, I think is a great way to start, right? Cause you're going to get some of that kind of worked out over time. Oh yeah. I mean, we, we, we drill from the time we're cadets on the five paragraph operations order, right? And the Ranger Handbook, right? <laughs> that Chris just pulled, there, right? Like it's it, got it, coffee stains on it. It's got tape holding it together. And I have written so many plans. And my business plan for Azimuth Consulting Group is written in a five-paragraph op order driven from the Ranger Handbook. Situation, right? So what's happening around you? What what what's the what's the enemy or what's the market doing? Right? What are your adjacent units? Your friendly forces? What are your what are your, your allies doing? The mission, right? What are you trying to accomplish? The execution, what's your intent? What's the overall concept? The big hand wave, here's generally what we're doing. And then what are, what are the really finite details? Service and support, how are you going to apply the resources to accomplish it? And then command and signal, who's in charge? When are they in charge? What happens if they need to go out for whatever reason? What are your is going to be when you need to change the plan that you know probably whether it's within the framework of this uh, in, in the ranger handbook or it's some other planning template ultimately what you're trying to do and much to what you were you alluded to before ob is that you know we were in this organization where it was really serious you have to get it right you have to get it right and you have to drive commitment but you know that same level of goodness within the organization that brought you from psychological safety to feeling like what you do fits in within the big scope and ultimately gets to the top of Maslow's hierarchy of needs and you have self-actualization or peak experience. If you're working at Google or Amazon or Starbucks or you know any other organization, achieving that, hey, what I do matters what I do makes a difference. That's what you're leading your organization to do. That People believe that I'm an insurance agent. And as a result, I give people safety. I'm making video games and I'm making people's lives epic. It's just as important because what you're doing is you're motivating people be their best. And I'm, that's the stoke, right? That's the stoke that Scott and I are really psyched about in terms of being executive coach because we got to have a purpose before in our past careers and this next career that, that Scott's embarking on right now, 
he's going to be able to help people achieve the top rung of Maslow's hierarchy of needs and feel like what they do matters. And that's pretty good. That's good stuff. That is good stuff. Gentlemen, I have, I think we're at the end of time here. I think we only made, I think we only made it three (laughs) questions into the sheet that I had sent you ahead of time about prepping, but I mean, this is great stuff and it, it really is fun to unpack this stuff. And I could sit here for another two hours and ask you questions. I want to be respectful of the listeners who've put in an hour to this already. I have one question that I ask everybody at the end of the show, which is what is the purpose of business in your mind? You, you've both come from a military background, transitioned into the business world. What, what's the point? What's the purpose of business? I think solving problems, right? And if you think about it internally versus externally, internally, uh, or excuse me, I'll start with externally. Externally, organizations exist in the private sector to solve their clients' problems, right? And therefore create value in a market, right? If you're solving your your clients' problems for you, for them, you're creating value and you're going to get more business, right? Internal to being a leader within business, I think the best leaders are the ones who solve their employees' problems, therefore making them more effective. Right, either removing obstacles from progress or making it easier to bring up feedback. Right, if you're removing those organizational obstacles, or using the previous example, hey, it's okay if you take three hours a month and go play with your little girl at kindergarten. Right, creating solving those problems, I think, allows your the people working for you to blossom. Right, and so it's twofold. Purpose of business, I would say, solving problems generally, externally being solving your clients' problems, internally being solving your your people's problems. You know, I think there's a neat a neat example with Starbucks during the pandemic. Starbucks started selling refreshers like red and pink and green, bright green, and these exotic refreshers because for even if it just was for the five minutes that it takes you to drink that refresher, you've escaped. You've escaped the just the the overweight, overbearing load of the situation we're in. Or you got this the pumpkin spice vate came out a couple of weeks early. And for a moment you just feel good and nostalgic in how things were. Starbucks just solved people's problems for just a short period of time. How cool is that? If that's the perspective you can have about your job, you're just helping other people solve their problems. And I think that's the reason for business. And I think that's the reason for leadership. I think as a good leader, whether you're getting left of a problem or right of a problem, whether you're preventing a problem or solving a problem once it's in place, good leadership is just serving your people to help them overcome their problems. Leaders eat last. That is a a good note to end on. Gentlemen, I really appreciate the time. Thank you for your service to the country and thank you for continuing to serve and taking what you've learned and making sure others are benefiting from it going forward. Really appreciate all the wisdom here today. Thank you. Thanks, Obi. You know, and I think Scott and I have talked about how much we appreciate just having this opportunity, but also 
I think it's very cool as a connoisseur of leadership, you're creating this opportunity for people to help refine and possibly get some reps by just listening to this podcast. So thanks for your service as well. <laughs> All right. Take care, gentlemen. Thank you. Thanks for being Hey folks, one last thing before you go. If you enjoyed the episode, make sure to hit subscribe so you can stay up to date with future guests. That's it. Thanks for coming. Go make the most of your business and the people in it.